this is Todd Stacy, and welcome to In the Weeds with Alabama Daily News. I am flying solo as a host this week, Mary Cell, without the watchful eye of Mary Cell. Uh, so if this whole thing crashes and burns, you'll know why. Um, but I'm very pleased to have our, a special guest this week. We Again, we promised to have interesting and influential guests. That's kind of the, the vibe of uh, In the Weeds. And so pleased to welcome Stephen Boyd. Uh, Stephen's uh, name is certainly familiar to anybody that's been involved in, around Alabama politics for the last 20 years, um, especially on the federal level. And I'll, I'll, I'll let him kind of go down his, his resume. Um, but daily news readers are certainly uh, more familiar now because he's been contributing a column beginning this January called the Monday Brief, and it's aptly named. It is a well-designed, it's essentially a, a briefing memo. If, if you're a member of Congress, you get into you know, Washington every week, and you need to be updated on what's going on. And, and so that's kind of how he designed it is, okay, here's what's happening on Capitol Hill, different topics, what you would need to know if you were a member of Congress uh, starting out. So it's, it's really been a hit with our readers. And so anyway, without further ado, Stephen? Welcome to In the Weeds. Thanks, glad to be here. I got to tell you, a little disappointed that my first appearance, your co-host, is not on. <laughs> that, well, yeah, it was just a, it was I, kind I, of. I a, really, <laughs> I really just showed up for Mary, but <laughs> well, it's it's not her fault. It's mine. Um, <laughs> That's okay. Kind of a scheduling thing, but sure. Uh, uh, so, um, but before we kind of get started and all the things to talk about, um, I, I was hoping that you could sort of um, remind listeners sort of your career background. The, the, when we sort of introduced your column, we did this in print, but maybe you could kind of rehash some of that, you know, long career on Capitol Hill, but also in the Department of Justice. Yeah, look, I've been uh, blessed from the start with just uh, some incredible opportunities um, to serve both our state and the country and to work with some amazing folks along the way. And, and that started coming straight out of law school, working for Jeff Sessions in the Senate. And I did a couple of years as a policy aide and focused mostly on energy and environmental issues um, starting back in 2004. And um, from there, uh, jumped around in kind of an unusual way. I mean, sometimes people ask, younger folks ask about like, how, how do you, you know, plan this out? And the answer is you don't plan it out. You just do your best every day and things happen. So um, I went to communications on the communication side and I was communications director uh, for a Senate Judiciary Committee, for the Senate Judiciary Committee during the, uh, the years of the Sotomayor and Kagan uh, Supreme Court nominations, uh, which is a pretty big deal in Washington. And so there led Republican messaging efforts on those, among many other things. Uh, from there, I uh, had the good fortune to meet uh, Martha Roby and become her chief of staff uh, for six years and some change in, uh, in the House. And that was a fantastic uh, time. We, we had a lot of fun. We did a lot of good work. We, we had a great team. Uh, Todd, of course, you were there and a big part of it. And so that was a, a real career highlight. And from there, some uh, you know things kind of happened, as they say, and I wound up being nominated by the president uh, to be the assistant attorney general of the United States on at the Department of Justice, with the responsibility 
to represent uh, the departments, the ATF, the FBI, DEA, and Marshal Service uh, to Congress. So to put it in perspective, there's about 10 divisions of the Department of Justice, 115,000 employees. I led the smallest division, smallest office, Office of Legislative Affairs, but we developed an agenda to support law enforcement, uh, to support counterintelligence and counterterrorism efforts um, across the country and really across the globe legislatively. Uh, we worked on the budget uh, to make sure our, our folks had the resources they needed to do the job. And uh, we handled all the oversight uh, from Congress, which was pretty intense because that was the, the really the height of the Clinton and Russia investigations during that time. So I worked for Attorney General Sessions for the first two years and thought that was probably the end of my time. People don't do those jobs for very long because they're pretty tough, uh, tough on you personally. Uh, but um, uh, Bill Barr came in and I met, met uh, Attorney General Barr and we hit it off and he asked me to stay on. So I was there for a full four years, which uh, really is probably the best part of my, my public service time. That's just, just not an opportunity uh, that comes around very often. So I was really, really, really fortunate to have that chance to, to serve in that way. And so in Southeast Alabama, people know me as Martha Roby's chief of staff in, uh, in, uh, in Washington. I'm mostly known for that time at DOJ. And then after that, I uh, had, had another uh, kind of out of nowhere opportunity to set up uh, Tommy Tuberville's office in the Senate after he won. And I uh, did not know Coach before that, but uh, we met and talked it through, and I felt like uh, I could help get him started in, in a good way. And um, we hired a team of about 40 uh, great folks, uh, both in D.C. and through the state, set up his office, uh, got him going on the right committees and doing some great work, and uh, was there for two years until the end of uh, last year, December and after that, um, joined most recently my uh, law school classmate uh, from, from back at University of Alabama School of Law, who I'd worked with at DOJ, and he had served at the Pentagon, uh, and joined him in a consulting firm called Horizons Global Solutions. So that's what I'm doing today, which affords me the opportunity to do a lot of great work uh, for our clients, but also do some things like work with you and Alabama Daily News and do podcasts like this, things that you just really can't do when you work in public service. Yeah, we, we were the beneficiaries of you no longer being in uh, the, the, the employee of the federal government. It's like, but, and it's interesting how that kind of came about. Um, of course, we've talked about it. We've, you know, text and, and talk about it, but like part of it from my perspective was, you know, when I started Daily News, five years ago, I had just left DC. So I had, I would, all that was fresh Congress, the, the machinations, just, you know, all that stuff was probably more fresh to me, certainly more fresh to me than the legislature and state politics. So I, I would, you know, spend a lot of time writing about, Hey, here's what's really going on and here's how everything works. But look, five years is a long time and you lose it. Those, those muscles right. atrophy and, um, so I, I know we, we talked about it this like it came along at just the perfect time because look, we run a lot of AP wire and, and, and that's great. They have actually a really good uh, DC team, but the behind the scenes stuff, I, I felt like we were missing. We had, we had lost over the years. So I, you know, I'm not blowing smoke. I've, I've gotten so much great feedback from folks because 
um, you know, reading the Monday brief because so much of what we, tr we, our, our brand is at daily news is like just more, you know, more, more in depth, more information. Um, and so I think that's, that's what you're providing. And so I've gotten great feedback. I, I would imagine that you've heard from folks too. Yeah. It's been, it's been fun. People write, write back and, uh, you know, it's very positive. Um, I think there is a, I think there's a thirst out there, an appetite for, you know, information about our government, about the people who, who are involved in it, about the things that are going on that is just straightforward, down the, down the middle, factual, mm -hmm. um, you know, without all the, the, the political rhetoric of um, what you get on, you know, on TV and uh, when the cameras are on politicians and things like that. And, and you, you, you did reference it, which is, you know, maybe I don't always hit the mark with this, but what I really would like to do is over time, especially uh, make it like that, like that first meeting of the week when the members fly in and uh, you know, they know they have a big busy week in front of them, but they don't necessarily know what it all uh, involves. And you, one thing you can count on in Washington is a staff meeting. <laughs> uh, and so they, it's a, uh, and everybody piles in a room and and goes down the list and you usually it's pretty um time limited because there's always something next so you get straight to the point and when when members and staff talk behind closed doors there's just there's just really not as you well know i mean it's it's really it's really about whatever the issue is what are the arguments on both sides who are the people who care who are the stakeholders how does this, does this impact my constituents uh, what does, you know, the chairman think about it, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you know, it's not until, frankly, uh, things are forward looking with cameras from the media that we get into this world where we start kind of putting everything deeply into political speak. So that's just try, you know, that's, that's just a, a kind of a vision for uh, providing that insight to folks who I know based on their feedback, uh, care and the wonkier and the weedier it gets the more the feedback there is so watch yep. out <laughs> yep that's yeah. look that's that's the brand and, and I, you fit in perfectly into it in, in such a, a value add yeah. well um speaking of capitol hill it it was it's been a busy couple of weeks i loved how in the last column you talked about sort of the tortoise and the hare right. the, the 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 house after after sort of some false starts i guess you'd say with the whole speaker vote really hit the ground running, passing all this legislation out. We, we, most of it, you know, as you sort of explain is messaging stuff and, and, but they're, they're still working and, and they're, they're, I mean, that's, there's something to be said for that. That's part um, of it. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to ask first about the committee situation because we, we reported this week, I think we broke it. I think we broke the news that uh, Senator Katie Britt is, is getting on appropriations. That was sort of a big question, right? Was she going to, Number one, go that route. Number two, be able be able to get it. I mean, it's you know she's a freshman, but also a freshman in the minority. But she did get on appropriations. Also got banking, which people might not realize that's a big committee. I mean, that's a committee that senators go after. They want it, um, and also rules. Um, interestingly, all three of those were yeah uh, Shelby <laughs> committees. Yeah, so some familiarity there, but yeah, com comfort zone maybe. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. But talk about the significance of that. How and maybe even like behind the scenes, what goes? How does a senator ask to be on a committee? What kind of leverage do they have in terms of? Is it Mitch McConnell? Do you got to convince him? 
Yeah, you sure do. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, but you know, big picture, just step back for a second. We're, we're in the, we're in the post Shelby era. Um, I worked in, in government for 18 years and until, until January 4th, I guess, or third Richard Shelby was a gigantic piece of everything going on as it related to Alabama and, and really the nation, uh, in his various, uh, senior roles, uh, as you alluded to banking, uh, he was senior on Intel. And then of course, uh, at the end, the really the crown jewel appropriations. Uh, so I think people in this world are, you know, what's, what's the post Shelby world going to look like? I mean, how's that work? Uh, he was so important. Uh, and I don't need to tell your listeners this so important in making so many major things happen in the state, economic development, the universities, uh, aerospace defense world, uh, particularly in Huntsville, but really throughout uh, shipbuilding infrastructure. I mean, you can go down the list. So I think the good news is that on the Senate side, and we can talk about it in detail, but Senator Britt has done a fantastic job positioning herself on these committees. That is not a surprise to me. And I don't think a surprise to you that she understands where she needs to be yeah. to, uh, to, to have the leverage for her, for her state. Uh, Senator Tuberville has done a fantastic job, if I may say so, getting on SASC, that's Senate Armed Services, uh, which is huge. Uh, he's on the Ag Committee. This year is a Farm Bill year. It's about every four or five years, so this is especially important. Ah, yeah. Uh, there's some other, you know, other Veterans Affairs. He's on uh, Help, which is Health Education, Labor, and Pensions, which covers a ton of territory. So they're they're good. I think also a really big story is that our House delegation punches way above its weight. And I've actually, it's kind of funny, this past week I was on the Hill and I ran into some folks not from Alabama and they brought it up. They said, hey, you know, your House delegation is like s super strong. Really? And yeah. And I said, yeah, well, I know that. But um, but it's, it's interesting, interesting to hear it from somebody else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. These folks were from uh, Kentucky, actually. And, um, and you know, you start, you start on the list there. Uh, with with Mike Rogers, I guess the top of the list being chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, probably under underappreciated maybe and under under uh, uh, acknowledged is uh, Representative Adderholt, very very senior on appropriations now with the Labor H subcommittee that's gigantic for Birmingham, Huntsville, biotech, biomedical, the universities. Uh, Jerry Carl's got on appropriations, which is a seat that. Uh, you know, Todd, as you know, has been a, an appropriator seat for a long time in uh, the Mobile area. Dale Strong on armed services and science, which is important for NASA. Yeah, it's perfect. And yeah, I mean, it's really great. Uh, Barry Moore went on judiciary, which is going to be a hotbed of activity with investigations with Jim Jordan at the helm. Terry Sewell on armed services now, which was a surprise to me, frankly, but I think it's fantastic with Maxwell Air Force Base. Well, yeah, so that that's what I was reminded of when, when I got that press release, because I wasn't ready for it either. I'm like, wait a second. I, they drew Maxwell into her district. Right. Which is, so and Maxwell is now fully in the seventh. Yeah, and it's fantastic to be able to have somebody on the other side of the aisle relative to the other members uh, to be able to express to people how important Maxwell is, uh, both to the Air Force, of course, and also to the local community economic-wise, economically-wise. So, mm -hmm. uh, and then Gary Palmer's, uh, you know, Republican Policy Committee, and he's uh, has a lot of influence from that position. So they're really 
the you know the senators are in great position. Seniority matters in the Senate. It builds up every day uh, now at this point, and that's great. Uh, Senator Britt is going to be uh, very, very influential on appropriations. It's going to take some time. Uh, it's not going to be like uh, filling the old boss's shoes immediately, but she will be very well positioned. Uh, Tuberville is already well positioned, and the House delegation is really strong. So I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. Mm. Yeah, I was I was on. I do these, you know, radio interviews, and like this this week's round of them, from Mobile to Huntsville, you know, Birmingham, the same topic kept coming up, and that's, oh, what do you think about uh, Senator Britt? You know, Katie Britt's really a star. I guess she did like a big Fox News interview or something. Yeah, has had a couple of really good press weeks, I guess you'd say. Um, you know, that doesn't that. Look, she's just different. She's 40 years old. She's a mother of two school age children. She's a, she's the different Republican than you're used to seeing, right? right. Repu Repu Republican senators are we're really all senators. Most senators are like crusty old white guys, right? So like she's just <laughs> completely different. You you said that not. <laughs> hey, I don't no, have, I don't have to lobby him. You know? <laughs> I um, but she's completely different. So of course that's appealing to anybody, right? It, it, Anybody throwing a fundraiser or anybody would love to have her visit their district and all that kind of stuff. So she's going to be going to be busy. But what I was getting at is you know, what I probably failed to explain a little bit on the radio was like when you do have an effective press operation and you're visible and, you know, doing a lot of good media hits and everything that sort of comes that sort of comes with capital of its own that sort of has absolutely. political cap yeah. absolutely yeah. i mean there, there's like the the, the 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 unspoken capital that shelby had it's not like he did a ton of interviews right he wasn't on fox news sunday but maybe her doing that just builds that political clout and, and accrues it earlier than than maybe she would have otherwise i think there's a lot of truth to that i mean look um you know you you can build your your base of influence in different ways. I mean, Shelby built it over you know, seniority and just being the top dog really in a lot of ways, but absolutely. When you walk into the, to the, to the Senator's conference meeting on Tuesdays or Wednesdays and you're, you know, you're a value add to them in so many ways as she is, because she can talk to a different generation than a lot of those guys can. And mm -hmm. to, um, women voters in a, in a way that a lot of those guys don't always do a great job doing. Um, that's a huge, that's a huge asset for, for uh, the, the Republican Senate conference. And you do that time and time again, and people really start to respect that and appreciate that. And it, it to your point, I think it puts you in a little bit different posture than if you just, um, just play inside baseball all the time. And there's a role for that too, of course. I mean, right. the people who know the process and the rules are the ones who usually win. Uh, somebody said that, you know, I'll get, you make the policy and I'll make the, the procedure. I'm going to beat you every time. It's <laughs> um, a lot of truth to that, but at the same time, she can probably do both. So, so yeah, she's, in, she's I, in a good position. I, I see that. Cause, cause yeah, these days, like, gosh, really, I guess over the last five years or so, I mean, you've got people that go up there and, hire more comm staff than legislative staff, right? right. They, they're, they don't really, they're not there to legislate. They're there to get on TV, which is, that's a thing now, whatever. 
Sure. Um, but but I, I think to truly be effective over the long term, you got to do both. And um, right. when you have the opportunity. All right. Let's switch gears to a actual policy item. Uh, probably the biggest one in the country right now. And that's the debt limit. Um, kind of a, a nebulous issue to, I think, a lot of people to sort of understand, even folks that really follow politics, really read the news and everything. It's hard to understand because it's like this annual or maybe semi-annual like okay we're, we're coming up against the debt limit we're going to ask congress to increase it and then you you have this a lot of sound and fury about you know what that is you look at the debt number i, I think what 30 32 trillion or yeah, maybe, yep. maybe more and so of course it's like a, this freak out well is it a crisis is it not um so i guess the latest is that the speaker went to the White House to negotiate with the president, uh, which, by the way, was kind of hey, a win. Like, why is that a big deal, though, right? Like, I mean, it was. You're right. But, like, shouldn't the speaker of the House go to the White House and talk to the president on a fairly regular basis? I yeah, mean, yeah. <laughs> like, don't we want that just in general? But, you know, that, yeah, that's but, just. But to your point, like, it was treated like such a big deal. In yeah, part <laughs> because the White House said, like, hey, we're not going to negotiate on this. That's right. Yeah. And that's so right. it was it was a win just to walk in the door. Um, and I'll say this as, and this is coming from somebody that doesn't normally compliment Kevin McCarthy, but I, I think he's actually played this pretty well. Who knows what, what will actually happen in terms of, but right. I think he's actually played it reasonably well in terms of like, or he gets the white house meeting. It, it at least appears like they're actually negotiating, which that is a concession in itself, but his rhetoric is not this like far right wing, burn down the Capitol hole, like for lack of a better way to put that, like it's, it actually sort of sounds reasonable and it's sort of the best of Kevin McCarthy, but maybe, I mean, I mean, I don't know what's your, am I off on that? No, I think he, uh, I think he is rising to the occasion on this, uh, so far and which is good because it is serious. Um, it's going to get worked out is my, uh, assessment because it's been worked out many, many times before. Uh, really, though, the, the the time between now and when it gets worked out will tell us a lot about sort of where people's priorities are uh, and where we are going in terms of, of, of spending. Uh, we can get into the details, I suppose, but they're going to have to cut a deal. And as you as you know, the the, the White House has taken the view basically that this is too serious. This is playing with fire. This is too important to, to even sort of like barter on. And so we're not going to negotiate. We just want you to, you Congress to increase the debt limit and the Republican conference, which uh, controls the house, uh, albeit by a slim um, majority uh, is insisting on some sort of uh, uh, spending cuts as yet undetermined. And I don't think that there's uh, a consensus within the Republican ranks uh, in the House on exactly what that needs to look like, which I guess is probably the first step, right? When you're going to go represent folks, you got to get them all on the same page so you can represent uh, your your side of the House. But that's a lot easier said than done, uh, particularly on an issue like this. So yeah. there's a lot to play out between now and when this really truly must be um, solved, which 
depending on who you talk to, is probably sometime in the late spring um, or mid-spring. So, so this is just kind of the first act in what probably is at least a three-act play and maybe more. Hmm. Well, it, you were a chief of staff in the House in 2011 when, again, this, this happens every once in a while, but that was – a brand new Republican majority, a, a, a sizable Republican majority. Right. Um, so, so some breathing room for Speaker Boehner and Leader Cantor and whatnot. Um, but there was a debt limit crisis, the, the fiscal cliff, I guess they would call it. And the, what, what resulted was the Budget Control Act. Talk about that experience back then. And is it, does it remind you any of what's going on right now? And, or, and, and and is it instructive at all? Uh, yes and yes uh, to that, for sure. Um, Jake Palmer, you know, uh, who, who is a uh, well-respected uh, journalist in, in D.C. and writes for Bones, I guess, Punchbowl News. Um, he, he Jake, Jake Sherman. Is Jake Anna, Sherman, thank Anna, you. Anna Palmer. Anna Palmer, yeah, thank you. Right. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Thanks for checking out the Punch Bowl. A great, yeah, yeah, a great sure. podcast uh, to listen to. No, they are. They're great. Uh, uh, thanks for correcting me. Um, you know, he, I think he said multiple times, and he's really kind of covers the house really closely, is this is deja vu on, on uh, you know, back in the day. And it really is. I, I totally agree. And the problem is, though, Todd, like half the house – of representatives, 435 members, half the house has only served for six years or less. Okay. Wow. So they don't really, they don't remember that. They don't, a lot of members don't know their turmoil and chaos and, you know, um, just tension and apprehension that came with, with that time. But, but it's similar in, in many respects. And at its core, it's, it's basically saying by uh, in this case, the Republicans saying, Hey, we we are way in debt, thirty one point something trillion. I mean, do you know how much a trillion dollars is? I don't. It's like it's and that's just impossible to wrap your head around. That's funny money. Yeah, and like something has to give, and there are only so many options and strategic in, inflection points or points of leverage in the process where we could make a real difference. And the debt limit is one of those times. So. It's, it's not surprising that here we are again trying to use that as use this this vote. Uh, essentially, what they're saying is I'll vote to increase the debt limit, which is essentially allowing us to pay bills that we've you know already spent that money. We just have to you know borrow money to pay the bill. Um, but moving forward, we got to do something different. And the real like magic sauce there is what is that something? And back in back in the Budget Control Act days, that but the Budget Control Act was the was the so, so-called solution. Um, you the, know, the probably, deal, the, the, the deal, yeah, yeah the between deal between Obama and, and the Boehner, and yeah. yeah, and the uh, right right wing of the House Republicans were pushing on Boehner to to find some sort of dollar for dollar cut uh, to to win their vote over and. Uh, a deal was reached, and it, it resulted uh, in a process called sequestration, which was like a, a series of cuts over many years. And frankly, the cuts became so politically painful that they were eventually uh, lifted um, because it just it wasn't. Uh, it started to kind of cut to the bone, I guess, in some people's 
view. So, you know, what, what happens next? Uh, it, like I said, it's going to be a multi-part play uh, and we'll, we'll a multi-act play. We'll see how it goes, but there's going to be some sort of deal around a dollar for dollar cut and across the board percentage cut, which I think is not a great idea. Uh, some sort of, creative solution, which I guess I would put the Budget Control Act in because they created the super committee and they tried to, you know, come up with some sort of new way to cut spending, which didn't really work. Yeah. Uh, we'll, so we'll see. I mean, we'll see, but this is just the beginning. Well, I guess that's a natural, uh, the next natural question is like, because I, I also explained this poorly on the radio because it, it, I don't know, it's hard to explain in like a couple of minutes, but, you know, one thing some Republicans are saying is like, okay, we're going to take Medicare and social security off the table, which of course yeah. is, that's, it's basically, that kind of comes from Trump. Yeah. Like he's like, look, we're never going to touch this stuff, but trying to explain the difference between discretionary spending and mandatory spending. Okay. <laughs> well, and, and I'll, 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 I'll do a, pri- <laughs> I'll do a primer. And that is that I think most people, I think most Americans for sure, but even some that, follow politics relatively closely may not understand that when Congress votes on even like the big old omnibus appropriations bill, or if they vote on individual appropriations bills as, as they should, um, as much money as that is, and as much of, you know, trillion dollars that is, it has nothing to do with social security or Medicaid or, or Medicare, some Medicaid, um, or, or, and, and there's other entitlement programs too, because that spending is all mandatory. It's on autopilot. And so to, right. to change it is to essentially change the law that was what enacted back in the sixties. Yeah. We're about to really get in the weeds here, I guess. So. Hey, name of the game. <laughs> hey, there it is. All right. So look, I mean, this is the way I look at it. Let's say all of our spending for this coming year is a, amounts to a hundred dollars. Okay. It's actually like $6.2 trillion. Or something. Let's just say it's a hundred dollars. Okay. Of that hundred dollars, like $63 of the hundred goes to social security, Medicare, Medicaid, veterans programs, and, a, and some other uh, entitlement or mandatory spending programs, 63 out of a hundred. So those programs are not within the purview of the appropriations committee. So we're just talking about how, Jerry Carl got appropriations, Katie, Katie Britt's on appropriations in the Senate. That's very, very important, but they don't touch any of that really. Okay. So to change that, to change the spending there, uh, you have to change the criteria that makes you entitled to receive the benefit. That's why it's called entitlement spending. So you have to raise uh, the retirement age or, you know, you have to change Medicare benefits or something like that. Traditionally, most people don't want to touch that because it's politically unpopular to mess around with people's benefits that they've paid into a system for yeah. a number of years. And, you know, they're expecting, maybe they've planned their retirement around that. So that's 63 of the hundred dollars right there. Seven of the dollars roughly would be payment, uh, interest payments on the existing debt. So that's like paying the interest on your credit card. You don't really have a choice about that. Okay. So that's 70 of the hundred adding the 63 and the seven of the rest. Uh, is called discretionary spending, and that's what Congress gets to um, uh, appropriate. But a lot of people, 
uh, a lot of members believe that in, an, in a time where Russia is being aggressive uh, in, in Ukraine, Iran, uh, North Korea's missile program, uh, obviously the big one, China, Chinese aggression. Uh, I guess this is the point where we talk about the Chinese surveillance. Yes, balloon. I, was, I, didn't, I didn't want to break your chain of thought, but yeah, we've got a Chinese yeah, uh, yeah, spy yeah. balloon. We'll, we'll... There's a spy balloon over Montana. Uh, you know, I don't know what to say about it. Um, so, somebody, uh, somebody tweeted like, this is not what we meant by flyover states, China. <laughs> that was clever. That's pretty good. So, you know, you got you got you got seventy of the hundred dollars in, in mandatory and interest uh, mandatory programs and interest payments. You got thirty of your hundred dollars in discretionary, but about half of that goes to defense. And 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 many members believe that that, that money should not be touched because we need to keep a strong national defense. We need to modernize technologies moving so fast. Chinese aggression, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that gets you down to fifteen dollars. So when you're talking about making these cuts. Out of your out of your spending each year, you're going from talking about a hundred dollars spending each year. No, you're actually just talking about fifteen dollars of spending each year. And I think, I don't know, if you did like, if you did uh, like two trillion dollar debt increase into a dollar for dollar spending, you would you know two trillion. It's over ten years probably. So you're talking about a very significant cut in programs like the agriculture department. Uh, Department of Justice, law enforcement, the federal uh -huh. court system, borders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's tough. It's very difficult if you're if you're taking, you know, uh, and I, and I'm assuming good intent on everyone's part here. I mean, you're saying this has to be fixed, but at the same time, you're taking a lot of it off the table. You're making it very difficult to find a deal that the House of Representatives, with a four vote Republican majority plus a democratically controlled Senate plus a uh, democratically controlled White House can all rally around. So right. that's that's the drama, I guess. Well, yeah, and, and sorry if that was confusing, as you know, clear as mud. Right? I no, I think I, I'm that was pretty pretty concise. Um, but and that's I guess that's sort of the point. So when they take it off the table, it's like, okay, we're not talking about the the big drivers of the debt. It's like, well, look, you could eliminate. What are the big ones? Okay that they always talk about. We, we want to eliminate the Department of Education. Okay. Okay. Uh, we want to cut foreign aid. Okay. Like, and there are, you know, three or four of these sort of greatest hits that, that Republicans typically go after. Um, but you could, you could do all that tomorrow. And it really doesn't begin to solve the long-term debt problem. Yeah. And those are, those are policy choices and uh, reasonable minds could, could agree or disagree on, you know, the wisdom of all that, but objectively the numbers don't add up to much. Well, we're now that we're fully depressed. Uh, <laughs> no, I just, it's one of those things that I, I really kind of hate being asked about it on like a radio show or something, because it's actually a pretty in-depth, complicated, right? You're not do, you, you're really not doing it justice if you can't get into the details because it's right. a, it's like, uh, like uh, somebody said this this law is so technical. Well, I mean, all of the law is technical. <laughs> That's what the whole point is. So yeah, this gets this gets into the details pretty fast. Yeah, like okay, you don't like money to Ukraine. Well, we're not giving them a trillion dollars. You know. So, yeah. Right. But um, let's move on. Uh, I wanted to talk about. Sort of a related subject. You you mentioned four seat majority in the House, and that sort of like depends on if a congressman falls off his ladder. 
right. uh, in Florida, but like right. incredibly slim. You saw what happened with the speaker's vote and that like, I mean, it was just demonstrated for all the Americans to see, which by the way, I thought that was pretty cool that like for a week almost people were watching the house of representatives for the, maybe the first time. Yeah. And, and they, as you, as you well know, they had a view that is unusual because the yeah. rules hadn't been passed and the cameras could actually, you know, show what, like what, what I've seen and you've seen and congressional staff see, which is a, a ton of interaction between members on a very personal level, but it's usually just off, you know, just outside the view of the C-SPAN yeah. cameras. So I think it's good. I wish, I wish they would, I will rarely impart my opinion. My, my personal opinion is that we'd be better off if they're going to have cameras in the, in the house chamber. We'd be better off if they showed the whole picture. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd go back further and say we shouldn't have cameras period, but that's, you know, that ship has sailed, but, but I, I agree. It was really illuminating because normally it's just on the, you know, the, the dais, the, the two podiums and, right. and you, you don't get to, <laughs> so you're seeing like AOC talk to Matt Gates and like, you know, <laughs> of, of, of course our own congressman, you know, ended up in a sort of weird moment. But um, uh, anyway, talk about the realities of that limited government because or I'm not limited government, but, but um, divided government because slim house majority, very slim majority in the Senate too, but bigger than it was. It's not 50, 50 anymore. You know, it's not the vice president doesn't have to come break the tie. They've got a majority. And what what goes into the dynamics and like can, can anything get done or, or or is it just I don't know where where are you on the scale of it's going to be complete chaos or maybe they can figure out some top level things. Yeah. So you know, look the there's a lot that gets done every day that is good and not controversial really um it's passed by unanimous consent in the senate it's passed under suspension of the rules which requires two-thirds votes in the house and uh you know they run through a bunch of votes on monday or tuesday night and you know it, it all it all happens it's not particularly newsworthy nobody really ever talks about it there's no reason to report on it but it it, it is a lot of things that do occur and some of them are meaningful and good um on the other end of the spectrum, you've got these major things that the mechanics of government that need to occur. Uh, we need, you know, the, the, the ramp. Well, I'll put it this way. The, the perception is that failure to do those things has very negative consequences for the government, for the economy, um, for our standing in the world, for our national security, et cetera. Uh, so, that's where they're going to have to focus and they're going to have to find a, a way to do those things. That would be the debt limit. That would be appropriations. Um, you know, the, the farm bill is like one of those it's, it's up for expiration uh, th this year. So, you know, that's something they'll work on. I think it's the, I think it's the in-between stuff that probably is the hardest, which is dealing with some of the major social and cultural issues that are going on today. I mean, uh, you know, to bring up a hot button issue like police reform, there, there are police reform bills. Uh, people have very strong opinions about that. They're all over the place. Uh, people are for them, against them, everywhere in between. They're, they're, we'll assume good intent and we'll assume, assume that um, 
that people are trying to do the right thing, but they're just all over the place in terms of their views. Very, very difficult to herd those cats in a way that produces results. So I'm, you know, not particularly optimistic about a lot of that stuff. Uh, another, another idea that I put in that category is um, big tech legislation that's been out there for a while. Uh, border security legislation. These are big things that and many people want to address them. Uh, there's a diversity of viewpoint on it, and it's very tough to see how you rally uh, the the necessary votes in the House and the Senate and, and get that to the president. He signed. It's just it's just hard to see a path for that stuff. So, yeah. Well, and you brought up immigration. I think that's a that's a perfect one because you, you talk about an issue that the the need is so obvious. I mean, it's it, we obviously have a border problem. Uh, you have been involved in this issue for a long time, not just in the Senate, but the Department of Justice. Yep. And but it strikes me that like in in today's, I guess in the last twenty years or so, maybe fifteen, maybe it's not that long, but it's almost like a party has to completely take over the government. It's almost like this parliamentary thing, where like, okay, when when Obama wins in '08 and takes Congress with him. I mean, for a minute they had sixty votes, right? And, and uh, Ooh, yeah. until, until Scott until Brown. But like, you have to completely take over the government with super majorities, um, filibuster-proof majorities, and and they pass what they want. So that's where we get Obamacare. Or, and on the other side of that coin is you know Trump gets elected president, majorities in the House and Senate. Uh, after twenty sixteen, they pass tax cuts, kind of you know, swung and miss at a couple other things. But I don't know. Part of me thinks like something as big as immigration, maybe it shouldn't be one party just dominating at the polls and therefore we get to enact our solution. Maybe it's it, it should be some, some give and take. But then again, I, I think ever since the Gang of Eight, which, by the way, you were very um, – you know, present there, like you said, on the judiciary care, judiciary committee and working yep. sessions. Um, I think we're only further apart. Um, oh, definitely. Uh, yeah, than, definitely. Than, than even we were back then. Yeah, definitely. I think if you look at the big legislation that, that Congress has passed and the president signed in American history, you're going to see most of the time it was done with a large bipartisan consensus. Um, and, you know, the, the American people have, for quite a number of years now, uh, fought back and forth as a whole on control and, and divided government. And it's really difficult to see how uh, on an issue like that, uh, immigration, uh, that, there, that there's, a, there's a big bipartisan agreement. I mean, I just, I just, I would love, personally would love for that day to come one way or the other, uh, but I, I just don't see it. And I think part of that is a little bit due, and this is, you know, obviously a bigger conversation, um, but it's a little bit due to the lost art of persuasion. Um, It's kind of like folks enter into Congress now a little bit just sort of like, this is what I am and I'm static and I'm not changing. And maybe that has to do with gerrymandering and all sorts of other things. But, you know, the, the, the number of votes on these big issues that are in play in the Congress, meaning a member can go and sit in another member's office 
and have a conversation and present a good argument and bring them along relatively narrow these days, um, which makes it that much harder, I think, to to build a to build a coalition, a consensus around some sort of broad solution. So the way to, you know, assuming that's correct, maybe it is, I think it is, uh, the, the way you counter that is you try to chip away at problems and you have narrow bills and they are crafted in a way that narrowly, surgically uh, attack a particular part of the problem. And then you take votes on those. That actually has not been happening that much lately. But the, I will say to their credit, the House Republican Conference has committed to more more votes, more amendments, having bills more tightly um, locked down to be germane to, to particular issues. But also more and, amendments and more debate. Yeah, a lot of amendments, which I you know I think is very very good. Uh, it's a I'm lot really curious how that plays out in practice. Yeah, it's going to be uneven. I mean, they're going to be. You have to accept that sometimes you're going to lose control over the process. That's just the reality of it. But in the long run, like people run for Congress and they want to legislate. You know, they want to. That's like that's quintessential act. I mean, even more so than voting. I think is like having an idea, putting it on paper putting it on the table and saying, let's take a vote on this. That's, that's what it's really all about. And uh, that's kind of a lost art. And so the more they do that, I think the better it is because the more people spend on, on working on that and legislating uh, and crafting their ideas, the less they feel compelled to go out and just talk uh, in heated partisan terms. Um, you know, I guess it's maybe it's a little bit of a difference between a workhorse and a show horse, but I think it's good for the I think it's good for the members and most members I talk to uh, really like the idea of being able to at least try, you know, and some and you win some, you lose some. Um, that's life. But they would they would really like the opportunity to try. And I think that's, you know, if, if it's headed there, that's a good thing. Hmm. Yep. Well, we're I'm taking too much of your time, but I've got two other topics I want to get to. Um, but you're very involved in defense oriented issues, uh, especially up there in Huntsville. We still don't have a decision on space command. I noticed, (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, okay. So weren't we supposed to, and and so what's going on? Well, uh, if you find out, let me know. Um, wish I could tell you, but I, I can tell you where things, you know, stand. Oh, wait, so and, you're not, you're not just having daily conversations with the secretary of defense and, uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Um, but, um, if I were, I would tell him how great Huntsville is. Um, <laughs> look, there you go. the, the, uh, he knows he doesn't need, he doesn't need to hear from me. Uh, you know, late in the fall, they said they had a decision was coming out shortly. All of the, all of the uh, analysis has been done, the evaluation, um, a, dis- a recommendation was made. Then the protest, uh, use that term loosely, uh, from other delegations uh, came up. The GAO looked into it. The Department of Defense Inspector General, which uh, if people don't you know, necessarily know what that means. That's the inspect. Every department has an inspector general's office. They have great authority to investigate anything the department does to make sure that it is uh, above board, follows the right process, free of any sort of fraud or corruption or misdeeds, things like that. 
um, having been a senior uh, Department of Justice official, um, have great respect for the Inspector General, and uh, you know that you don't the day the day they call is a day is a bad day typically. So <laughs> uh, fortunately, I didn't have to deal with that, but you know, very 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 much respect it. Uh, so both the GAO and the IG did very in-depth evaluations, found that, um, you know, basically the process was good and the decision uh, was reasonable. And it's it's kind of sitting on the desk of the secretary of the Air Force. There was a um, comment made at the end of last year that the decision was coming shortly. The final decision was coming shortly. Um I think most people, I know most people thought shortly meant, uh, uh, m most people involved thought that shortly meant before the end of the year, but here we are in February. So that's where it stands. And uh, I know a lot of people are, are eagerly awaiting word. Yeah. Well, I, I just, I, I knew you had written about it. So I wanted to, to get your yep. take on, on the yep. podcast. Last question. And I, I, again, I apologize for taking your time, but, um, we ran this poll. Oh, sorry, we, we ran a story about this poll. It wasn't actually our poll. We um, got some polling numbers that the Public Opinion Strategies Group, a group that we've actually worked with in our professional lives. I mean, they're they're respected. They're very good. Yeah, yeah, uh, and they've done good work in Alabama. So it's not like they're cold calling Alabama. Uh, they came out. They had a poll for great schools for families for Alabama families for great schools, which is a charter school group. Um, but in addition to polling education issues, they polled, hey, why not? It, it's a it's a poll of Republican voters only. And so why not poll the potential presidential contest in the primary? Uh, former President Donald Trump, who's an announced candidate, and Governor Ron DeSantis, who most people think probably uh, will or, or should run for president. Crazy result. I mean, well... Maybe maybe surprising a little bit to me. I don't know. Fifty percent of Alabama Republicans said they would either definitely or probably vote for Ron DeSantis, while only thirty-one percent said they would vote for Trump. So that just really stood out. I mean, that's that's DeSantis whooping Trump. Hmm. But what really makes it stand out is uh, this. Actually, was our poll back in um, October, right before the election, about a week before the election. We did some polling with Signal, which is, you know, Brent Buchanan's group. Yep. Um, and it was Donald Trump, DeSantis, and just like kind of a long list of potential contenders. Well, back then, Trump was at almost 50%, 49.6%. DeSantis was under him at 35.7%. So they've almost flipped just, in, just since the election. And so my take on that, when I see that, the election has to have had a huge impact on primary voters who are, maybe are disappointed by what Trump's impact on the election was because, you know, Republicans lost out in the Senate. They were promised a red wave. It never materialized. When you saw this poll come out, did that line up with sort of your where you're seeing conventional wisdom go? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you're in Mar-a-Lago, you're not happy about that. That's that's a those are those numbers are really surprising. This is Alabama. This is not right. a national poll. This is Alabama where Trump really got his start. If you think about it, that that uh, mobile speech and yep and all that like yep. so to, to yeah. see Alabama Republicans kind of turning the page maybe. Well, 
you know, politics is usually a pendulum and it swings both ways. And when it gets to the, to the far side, it starts to swing back a bit. Um, so that's maybe what's occurring. I think, you know, there are only really two things, broadly speaking, that come to my mind when I try to figure out what's going on there. One is the classified document situation at Mar-a-Lago and, mm, and yeah. the investigation and special counsel and that sort of thing. Um, and I think that's important in a certain way, which I'll, I'll mention in a moment, but the other is, is the election and uh, you know, his, his endorsement of candidates that didn't win. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the potentially, you know, really negative consequences that came with that from that perspective. Um, both of those, you know, I, I, I don't think that the poll you're referencing um, got into this sort of detail, but some other things I've seen suggest uh, like people are, are kind of moving away from Trump. You know, maybe they, maybe they don't like him as much anymore, or maybe they like him just as much. But the thing they say is that they don't think he can win. Yeah, and and they, and they want to win, and they want to win. That's right. And uh, there was a New York Times story about um, uh, the the party convention. You know, the, they elected new leader. Well, they reelected the same leadership, and they had everybody together, and they did some sort of survey of 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 all the different delegates there. And I can't remember the numbers, but an overwhelming number percentage said, like a very surprisingly large percentage of folks in the RNC who you would think would be pretty loyal to Trump said, um, yeah, uh, we just don't think he's going to win basically. So we're looking for another horse. And so I think that I I make, I make no, uh, I make no forecast of the future, but I think that probably uh, is where people are. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it does make sense because it's not just, all right, 2020 happens. Trump lost, but a lot of people had a, took a while to get over that, or, or maybe to accept that it was the truth that he lost. Right. Uh, then twenty twenty, well, you could actually say twenty twenty one happened because of those um, races in Georgia, which look, <laughs> I mean, he he, right. screwed, he screwed that up for for those candidates. Uh, and then twenty twenty two happens. It's like man, three three L's, uh, and and. In Alabama, if if nothing else, we like to win. Um, I, I speak as an Auburn fan. <laughs> like when 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 we stop winning, we have like problems, and so <laughs> we, yep. we tend to fire people and things. So, yeah. Um, anyway, well, I, I appreciate you delving into you know rank punditry, even though that's not really your forte. But it's well, uh, it's you know it's it's an evaluation of kind of a uh, constantly changing dynamic and that's kind of what makes all this really interesting is that it's never the same for very long so um time will tell uh you know add add nikki haley to that yeah uh that poll next time i guess and we'll see what it looks like she was so she was actually in the signal poll from october and clock senate 0.9 percent so Okay, well, she's got some she's got some work to do. <laughs> yeah. But interestingly, when you take t- when you take Donald Trump off of the ballot, she clocks in at two point one. So I guess she's getting some Trump vote. I don't know. I, it, it seems to me she's probably like running for vice president. But we'll see. I, I like Nikki Haley. I always have. She's got an interesting. 
sort of career arc. But yep. um, anyway, well, look, we're out of time. Thank you for being so generous with your time. And uh, to our listeners, please give us a good rating, write us a good review, and always read Alabama Daily News, especially on Monday. <laughs> Stephen Boyd's Monday brief comes out. Stephen, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, my pleasure. A lot of fun. Look forward to next time. All right. And with that, we'll see you next time.